Chapter Thirteen of Wild Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. Wild Wales by George Borrow. Chapter Thirteen. Sunday arrived. A Sunday of unclouded sunshine. We attended divine service at church in the morning. The congregation was very numerous, but to all appearance consisted almost entirely of English visitors, like ourselves. There were two officiating clergymen, father and son. They both sat in a kind of oblong pulpit on the southern side of the church, at a little distance below the altar. The service was in English, and the elder gentleman preached. There was good singing and chanting. After dinner I sat in an arbour in the Perlan, thinking of many things, amongst others spiritual. Whilst thus engaged, the sound of the church bells calling people to afternoon service came upon my ears. I listened, and thought I had never heard bells with so sweet a sound. I had heard them in the morning, but without paying much attention to them. But as I now sat in the umbrageous arbour, I was particularly struck with them. Oh, how sweetly their voice mingled with the low rush of the river at the bottom of the Perlan. I subsequently found that the bells of Llangollen were celebrated for their sweetness. Their merit, indeed, has even been admitted by an enemy. For a poet of the Calvinistic Methodist persuasion, one who calls himself Aynion D, in a very beautiful ode, commencing with Tang never the Llangollen, says that in no part of the world do bells call people so sweetly to church as those of Llangollen town. In the evening, at about half-past six, I attended service again, but without my family. This time the congregation was not numerous, and was composed principally of poor people. The service and sermon were now in Welsh. The sermon was preached by the younger gentleman, and was on the building of the second temple, and, as far as I understood it, appeared to me to be exceedingly good. On the Monday evening myself and family took a walk to the abbey. My wife and daughter, who were fond of architecture and ruins, were very anxious to see the old place. I too was anxious enough to see it, less from love of ruins and ancient architecture, than from knowing that a certain illustrious bard was buried in its precincts, of whom perhaps a short account will not be unacceptable to the reader. This man, whose poetical appellation was Yologoch, but whose real name was Floyd, was of a distinguished family, and Lord of Tlechrid. He was born and generally resided at a place called Coide Pantun, in the upper part of the Vale of Cloyd. He was a warm friend and partisan of Owen Glendower, with whom he lived at Sicha for some years before the great Welsh insurrection, and whom he survived, dying at an extreme old age beneath his own roof-tree at Coide Pantun. He composed pieces of great excellence on various subjects, but the most remarkable of his compositions are decidedly certain ones connected with Owen Glendower. Amongst these is one in which he describes the Welsh chieftain's mansion at Sichart, and his hospitable way of living at that his favourite residence, and another in which he hails the advent of the comet which made its appearance in the month of March, 1402, as of good augury to his darling hero. It was from knowing that this distinguished man lay buried in the precincts of the old edifice that I felt so anxious to see it. After walking about two miles we perceived it on our right hand. The Abbey of the Vale of the Cross stands in a green meadow, 
in a corner near the northwest end of the valley of Llangollen. The vale, or glen, in which the abbey stands, takes its name from a certain ancient pillar or cross, called the Pillar of Eliseg, and which is believed to have been raised over the body of an ancient British chieftain of that name, who perished in battle against the Saxons about the middle of the tenth century. In the Papist times, the abbey was a place of great pseudo-sanctity, wealth and consequence. The territory belonging to it was very extensive, comprising, amongst other districts, the Vale of Llangollen, and the mountain region to the north of it, called the Egloisig Rocks, which region derived its name Egloisig, or ecclesiastical, from the circumstance of its pertaining to the abbey of the Vale of the Cross. We first reached that part of the building which had once been the church, having previously to pass through a farmyard in which was abundance of dirt and mire. The church fronts the west, and contains the remains of a noble window, beneath which is a gate, which we found locked. Passing on, we came to that part where the monks had lived, but which now served as a farmhouse. An open doorway exhibited to us an ancient gloomy hall, where was some curious old-fashioned furniture, particularly an ancient rack, in which stood a goodly range of pewter trenchers. A respectable dame kindly welcomed us, and invited us to sit down. We entered into conversation with her, and asked her name, which she said was Evans. I spoke some Welsh to her, which pleased her. She said that Welsh people at the present day were so full of fine airs that they were above speaking the old language, but that such was not the case formerly, and that she had known a Mrs. Price, who was housekeeper to the Countess of Mornington, who lived in London upwards of forty years, and at the end of that time prided herself upon speaking as good Welsh as she did when a girl. I spoke to her about the Abbey, and asked if she had ever heard of Yologoch. She inquired who he was. I told her he was a great bard, and was buried in the Abbey. She said she had never heard of him, but that she could show me the portrait of a great poet, and, going away, presently returned with a print in a frame. There, said she, is the portrait of Tumor Nant, generally called the Welsh Shakespeare. I looked at it. The Welsh Shakespeare was represented sitting at a table with a pen in his hand. A cottage lattice window was behind him, on his left hand a shelf with plates and trenchers behind him on his right. His features were rude, but full of wild, strange expression. Below the picture was the following couplet. Clean gour, ilchlawn, gwyrawen, a bead, a lanworth, oi ben. Did you ever hear of Tumor Nant? said the old dame. I never heard of him by word of mouth, said I, but I know all about him. I have read his life in Welsh, written by himself and a curious life it is. His name was Thomas Edwards, but he generally called himself Tumornant, or Tom of the Dingle, because he was born in a dingle, at a place called Pen Porchell, in the Vale of Cloyd, which, by the by, was on the estate which once belonged to Yologor, the poet I was speaking to you about just now. Tom was a carter by trade, but once kept a toll-bar in South Wales, which, however, he was obliged to leave at the end of two years, owing to the annoyance which he experienced from ghosts and goblins and unearthly things, particularly phantom hearses, which used to pass through his gate at midnight without paying when the door was shut. "'Ah,' said the dame, "'you know more about Tom Ornant than I do. "'And was he not a great poet?' "'I dare say he was,' said I, "'for the pieces which he wrote, and which he called interludes, had a great run, "'and he got a great deal of money by them. 
but I should say the lines beneath the portrait are more applicable to the real Shakespeare than to him. "'What do the lines mean?' said the old lady. "'They are Welsh, I know, but they are far beyond my understanding.' "'They may thus be translated,' said I, "'God in his head the muse instilled, "'and from his head the world he filled.' "'Thank you, sir,' said the old lady. "'I never found one before who could translate them.' "'She then said she would show me some English lines "'written on the daughter of a friend of hers who was lately dead, "'and put some printed lines in a frame into my hand. "'They were an elegy to Mary, and were very beautiful.' I read them aloud, and when I had finished she thanked me, and said she had no doubt that if I pleased I could put them into Welsh. She then sighed and wiped her eyes. On our inquiring whether we could see the interior of the abbey, she said we could, and if we rang a bell at the gate, a woman would come to us, who was in the habit of showing the place. We then got up and bade her farewell, but she begged that we would stay and taste the dour santithe of the holy well. "'What holy well is that?' said I. "'A well,' said she, by the roadside, "'which in the time of the popes was said to perform wonderful cures.' "'Let us taste it by all means,' said I. "'Whereupon she went out and presently returned with a tray, "'on which were a jug and tumbler, "'the jug filled with the water of the holy well. "'We drank some of the dour santithe, "'which tasted like any other water, "'and then after shaking her by the hand, "'we went to the gate and rang at the bell.' Presently a woman made her appearance at the gate. She was genteelly dressed, about the middle age, rather tall and bearing in her countenance the traces of beauty. When we told her the object of our coming, she admitted us, and after locking the gate conducted us into the church. It was roofless, and had nothing remarkable about it, save the western window, which we had seen from without. Our attendant pointed out to us some tombs, and told us the names of certain great people whose dust they contained. "'Can you tell us where Yolo Gorch lies interred?' said I. "'No,' said she. "'Indeed, I have never heard of such a person.' "'He was the bard of Oenglandour,' said I, "'and assisted his cause wonderfully by the fiery odes "'in which he incited the Welsh to rise against the English.' "'Indeed,' said she. "'Well, I am sorry to say that I never heard of him.' "'Are you Welsh?' said I. "'I am,' she replied. "'Did you ever hear of Thomas Edwards?' "'Oh, yes,' said she. "'I have frequently heard of him. "'How odd,' said I, "'that the name of a great poet "'should be unknown in the very place where he is buried, "'whilst that of one certainly not his superior "'should be well known in the same place, "'though he is not buried there.' "'Perhaps,' said she, "'the reason is that the poet whom you mentioned "'wrote in the old measures and language "'which few people now understand, "'whilst Thomas Edwards wrote in common verse "'and in the language of the present day.' "'I dare say it is so,' said I. From the church she led us to other parts of the ruin. At first she had spoken to us rather cross and loftily, but she now became kind and communicative. She said that she resided near the ruins, which she was permitted to show, that she lived alone and wished to be alone. There was something singular about her, and I believe that she had a history of her own. After showing us the ruins she conducted us to a cottage in which she lived. It stood behind the ruins by a fish-pond, in a beautiful and romantic place enough. She said that in the winter she went away, but to what place she did not say. She asked us whether we came walking, and on our telling her that we did, she said that she would point out to us a near way home, 
She then pointed to a path up a hill, telling us we must follow it. After making her a present, we bade her farewell, and passing through a meadow, crossed a brook by a rustic bridge, formed of the stem of a tree, and ascending the hill by the path which she had pointed out, we went through a cornfield or two on its top, and at last found ourselves on the Llangollen Road, after a most beautiful walk. End of chapter 13